buy online, don't wait in lines. This week, it's the third week of the local state of emergency. But that siren wailing you've been hearing for three weeks isn't the emergency beacon. It's your kids. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Matt. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 80, COVID episode three, I guess. Is this three? Three, four, five. I don't know. I miss you, Troy. Time immemorial. I haven't left these walls in ages. That's not true. I've been going outside a lot. Um, just fresh air. See any other humans ever. Thankfully, that lack of human contact makes the rapid fire all the more biting because I'm cranky and angry. This week, during a COVID update, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau cautioned against speaking moistly. Immediately realizing his error, he tried to downplay the word use by uttering a dollop of nasty-sounding words like mucus, phlegm, ointment, curd, and slurp. But to no avail. Oh my god. Oh no. Don't do that on an episode. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. Self-isolation, quarantine. Get out. Police, it's fine. Oh boy. All right. I was, (laughs) it was just some dust. It was just some dust. But to no avail, the damage was done. Despite frustratedly smacking his lips for the remainder of the conference, stewards of internet culture were already producing an auto-tune remix. As Edmonton closes fenced off-leash dog parks, private pay-per-use dog parks have seen a surge of business. While many have lamented the closures as another indicator in a public system that doesn't build enough space for people and a further subsidy of private facilities for the rich, The owners of the new parks don't see it that way. The owner of an in-development private dog park called Air Buds and Cannabis said, quote, it's not about one or the other, it's about dog park choice. Our charter dog park allows for development of innovative programming like circle running for the rotationally gifted doggo. And if we use the per-pupper funding for startup costs on our cannabis selling fundraisers, well, that just seems like prudent fiscal planning. With oil heading to potentially negative prices, so too might our landfill diversion rate. We found out in previous years that the alleged 90% diversion from landfill rate that many of us boasted about was in fact a complete work of fiction, and the real diversion rate was closer to 35%. While the city set a target rate of 41% in 2019, that was missed as well because, well, roofs on composting facilities appear to be deemed by city officials to be non-essential. Now, with COVID-19 reducing the number of sorters on the line, even the recyclables that you put in your blue bag may well be ending up in the landfill as the city struggles to maintain sorting capacity. Asked about the decline in sorting, a frustrated city official snapped back, What are Edmontonians doing? Do we not understand we're in end times? Has no one read a young adult dystopian novel? Please observe appropriate garbage handling procedure and throw the bags in the street and light them on fire. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. This episode is brought to you by The Loop, a new podcast from CBC Edmonton. Host Tara McCarthy of Edmonton AM takes you behind the scenes every week, sharing the details that don't make it into a typical radio or TV story. There's always more to the story and more to learn about our city. That's what The Loop is for. I know we've riffed about this in the past, about being the second best municipal politics podcast and municipal issues podcast. Right. Have you listened to The Loop yet? No. No, have you? Uh, I subscribe to it in my podcast app. Um, have yet to open an episode. But you, dear listener, you can do as we say and not as we do and listen to The Loop, the second best Edmonton podcast. 
I mean, what? They don't pay us to listen to it just to read the ad. That's right. You can find The Loop on the CBC Listen app or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also, of course, find it online at cbc.ca slash Edmonton. Thank you for the money, CBC. (laughs) Well, you're Um, helping out with the download count, so there's something. Let's jump right into the money of it all, because I think, and this may be off base, maybe slightly uh, incorrect, but I think COVID-19 is having a financial effect on the city of Edmonton. You picked up on the scent. There's something there for sure. Yeah, I mean, the details we got for the March 30 council meeting, the first meeting they've had since they kind of suspended them, that wasn't an emergency advisory committee meeting. And we learned uh, that the administration has done some projections, I guess, on um, how their revenues are going to be impacted and the costs that they're spending to deal with the pandemic. And so the, the sort of headline number is that a $27.8 million net loss for the city by the end of April, which is pretty significant. If I recall correctly, we only ended the fiscal all of last fiscal year with a $20 million surplus. So, I mean, that's wiped out right there. Um, the projections also look at, you know, if we kept physical distancing measures in place until mid-June, the loss rises to $61 million. If we keep it in place till mid-September, the loss rises to $112 million. So lots of these losses come from transit, which, as we've talked about, is now currently free, as well as from closed rec and community centers, which is one of the reasons why the city, of course, had to lay off uh, nearly 2,100 staff uh, recently. With the rec centers, we've laid off the rec center staff. So while there's facility costs, where is this staffing that's really driving up these lost costs? Well, it's the lost revenues and then it's the unexpected costs they talk about, right? In terms of having to do things like provision the expo center as a self-isolation facility and, you know, some of the other things that they're having to do to to deal with. It's like put up signs after we told them they should put up signs on the park trails. The other thing the mayor said this week, of course, is that the delay in property tax collection. He said, quote, when you delay the collection of up to one and a half billion dollars in property taxes, plus several months of utility fees through the summer, you can actually burn through your cash reserves and start bouncing checks. Obviously, we want to avoid that, end quote. So, I mean, I guess it's a little bit of what we're already incurring in costs, but what we're about to incur as well. Well, and it was interesting. We had the provincial update this Wednesday uh, with the premier getting on and talking about the generally dire state of uh, Alberta's finances, essentially, or Alberta's deficit for this year was on track to about triple. The city, by comparison, if we're talking about if it lasts till mid-June, that's $61 million, that's not a lot of money relative to the entire city's budget. But because the city isn't able to borrow cash and run deficits in the same way that the province has, this $61 million is actually pretty, a pretty crippling number. That's right. And we don't have any guarantee or any sort of backstop from either level of government yet for municipalities. So, you know, they're restricted, as you say, in the ways, the ways that they can raise money or borrow money. So, you know, without the other orders of government stepping in to say, we're going to cover this for you, um, they're in a pretty difficult spot. And did City Council make any decisions about this? I mean, obviously, this is a pretty big issue, but I don't know that we can go about solving something like this until we get a handle on COVID-19. Right. I mean, this was a preliminary discussion to get some initial numbers. Um, The city, of course, is now being run by the emergency management agency, essentially. So it's up to them to decide what they need to do. And they're being driven, of course, not by cost, but by public health. And so the decisions they're making are 
are really to try to stop the spread and, and help us flatten the curve. Um, what we did learn is that council is going to be discussing this right away, actually. So on April 15th um, is going to be the next council meeting, and they're scheduled at that meeting to get the supplemental operating budget adjustment that we would typically get in the spring, this time, of course, really focused on the impacts of COVID-19. So we'll look forward to that. That's probably the next chance council will have to do some stuff. But like you said, we're being run by the Emergency Management Agency. And this week, they have actually done some stuff that I was uh, suggesting they might not have done because they were dragging their heels. It was the road adjustments. So things like beg buttons. There's, I believe, 58 intersections around the city that were changed to... uh, Instead of having to push the button to actuate the pedestrian signal, the lights will change automatically. There were garbage bags over the buttons now and a sign saying, please don't push this, don't touch your face. Uh, And as well, there was a couple road closures, though the road closures were not huge. Right. Victoria Promenade, so 100th Avenue, from 116th Street to 121st Street. So it's a nice, you know, overlooking the River Valley. Lots of people use that road for for recreation. And there's a bike lane along there. And essentially, they're going to expand that and convert it into a more of a shared use space. And then the other road is Saskatchewan Drive from 105th Street to 109th Street. So again, it's a fairly short area. Not a ton of traffic, I suppose, uh, going on right now, which is the reason they're looking at, at doing this to, to streets. Um, but essentially, they're taking the north lane and converting it into a shared use space for people who are walking and, and biking. So as you say, not big major roads, not large sections of those roads. It feels a little bit like dipping your toe in the water. Not to complain, especially the Saskatchewan Drive change. I think that's absolutely huge because the shared use path on Saskatchewan Drive is only like 58 centimeters wide. It's a very narrow shared use path, impossible to social distance on, and it gets quite a lot of traffic from people in the university area. Yeah. But again, cities like Winnipeg, Winnipeg of all places, have had these measures and they disabled beg buttons weeks ago. And it seemed like for some, somewhere like Edmonton, where we're really pushing this multimodal transportation network in our general lives to not be able to allow people onto the streets when vehicle traffic has declined massively and we need to physically distance. It shocked me that this didn't happen sooner, but it also really highlighted a problem with our current governance model right now, which is basically we're in martial law under Adam Laughlin, the uh, acting city manager, who's the head of the uh, emergency management agency, because council had flagged for really almost 10, 12 days by the time this was implemented, hey, we should close some roads, we should disable beg buttons, and just administration didn't really act. It really highlighted council's ineffectiveness at this point in time, just because they've sort of handed over authority to someone else. Yeah. And I've said before that, you know, I want to cut them some slack because I know it's a very stressful time and they've had a lot on their plates and they continue to have a lot on their plates. So I'm sure administration is doing the best they can. But as you as you quite rightly point out, other cities have done this. And, you know, that's what council was in a large way reacting to. Right. The mayor you know, quote tweeted the thing from Calgary when he saw that they had closed parts of Memorial Drive, for instance. So, you know, other places are doing this and they're doing it quickly. And you would think that the city here could be able to respond to that. On the um, on the big buttons, I'm obviously not a fan. And every time I get up to one, my blood just 
my blood pressure rises. Uh, so it was really interesting to me to read uh, Andrew Knack's comments this week. He said, this is just a very simple change that makes a lot of sense. And he said, quote, frankly, with many of these locations, it would likely make sense never to bring them back, end quote. And I just want to say I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I think that will be the really interesting takeaway after COVID ends, knock on wood, what the new normal will look like because there's a lot of these changes that are being made out of emergency management Mm -hmm. but are really challenging our status quo and i thought the most phenomenally interesting thing is uh dr fossey who uh is the grand pooba head honcho medical officer in the united states poor guy who has to deal with trump every day i feel for him fauci right dr anthony fauci i'm not well versed on u.s politics so (laughs) apologies Uh, doctor, if I got your name wrong. But he had tweeted just the other day that we shouldn't really ever shake hands again. Right. And it really highlights what is the point of shaking someone's hand? It's something that's so ingrained in our social culture and our business culture. But literally, what does it do? And it's just a massive viral vector. Maybe this is one of the things that just fundamentally shifts in how we socially interact afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the same should be said for these all these buttons, not just pedestrian buttons, but also LRT buttons. Like, I don't open or touch any doors when I walk into a lot of places. They're automatic. Why do I have to press the button on the LRT train? Um, let's make those things permanent. Not to mention there's a accessibility aspect of that whole thing as well. Right. Pushing the button is hard if you've got a mobility aid. Yeah, definitely. We will deal with the new normal when it happens. Uh, we're not quite there in the new normal. And getting us to the new normal is interacting with the public health orders that exist. We have seen the mayor express frustration at a particular staircase, which having cycled past a couple times, hasn't gotten much better. The Glenora stairs are still quite busy at most points in time. But now there's an online tool to uh, report a uh, social closer, I guess, a non-social distancer. Or physical distancer. Yes. You can log your concerns now online. um, And the reports they say will only be used for analyzing and tracking purposes. And then the other tool you can use is to make a complaint about a violation of an order. So um, related to, say, vehicle for hire services. So if there's too many people in a taxi or they're not wiping it down or something, playground closures and dog park restrictions. And this is the main thing that they talked about today. We're recording this on Thursday. This episode comes out on Easter Friday, Good Friday, you know, the the long weekend coming up and the need for people to get outside and, you know, get some fresh air, do a little bit of exercise, but also the desire to want to go and see family and things like that. The city really hammered home this idea that we need to avoid that. And so it's no coincidence that they release these things just in time for the long weekend. I want to talk briefly about the dog park at all because we made a rapid fire joke about this, but I really struggled with the closing of the four fenced um, dog parks. Right. And one of them, I think that hits most close to home for you is Alex Decoteau Park in downtown. Right. Because we've talked about that park in the past where downtown has so few green amenities and you were really stoked to have a green amenity. And now it's closed because it has a fence. 
that really didn't click with me. Yeah, and it didn't click with Councillor McKean either, who asked about this when they brought it up at the the first time in the meeting and, and said, like, this is a pretty heavily used and important amenity for this area. It's a highly densely populated area. Like, is there nothing we can do? Can we not just enforce the and monitor the physical distancing? Like, why do we have to physically close it? And they've decided to go ahead and close it. More of the questions in the news conference today from the media were related to this. People are upset about the dog dog closures and the uh, requirement to be on leash. You know, the Dakota Park one is really interesting because there is a green space and then there's the enclosed community garden and the enclosed dog park. And so they've closed the dog park, obviously. The other parts don't have a fence, like the green space is still open. But what happens now is the dog owners go and let the dog do their business all over the grass and covered in snow and it snows and then it melts again. So, you know, bringing my daughter out to run around for a little bit, we've got to make sure we're dodging all the little piles on the ground. It's really especially frustrating for me because the reasoning that the emergency management agency gave for closing these is that these amenities are popular. It just doesn't click with me. If you close the popular amenity, that needs is still there. The desire to exercise one's dog is still there. And they're not closing on-leash dog parks. They're just making it less appealing to dog owners because dog owners typically travel. And like, I get that idea that, oh, well, we're seeing a lot of usage, so we need to limit usage. But the example of Alex Decoteau Park There's this huge, what is it, five or six lane roadway that in the best of rush hour is not full. Close three of those lanes and just give it to people. And suddenly now that park is not um, super packed and lack of social distancing. I find this whole solution is engineered in the Edmonton haphazard solution way, where we take the easiest way out that mostly devalues our public space and people's usage of it. Yeah, I think that's a fair criticism. We did get some statistics about complaints when they announced these new online forms. So there's been 283 verbal warnings at dog parks on the weekend that they closed it, April 4th and 5th, and uh, 50 verbal warnings about playground closures. So I don't know if that's a lot or a little, and I guess we'll see after the long weekend um, what the city reports. Apparently, saying things on the Thursday uh, gets them done for Friday morning. Yeah, what have you got in mind? Well, here's the thing. And I ragged on the Glenora stairs again, that that is a frequently used staircase. And it makes sense because there's a parking lot right at the bottom. It's a well-known, like difficult River Valley stair to do. But people arrive there and it's busy and they're like, well, I, I don't know where else to go. We have hundreds of staircases. I feel like maybe just like a little paper sign saying, hey, walk five blocks east. There's another staircase there. There's another one another seven blocks away. If there's a little bit of wayfinding of just like, yes, there are a lot of amenities. Here are some of them. If this is full, go to one of those. And I think that might do wonders for the dispersion of there's going to be some people who aren't obeying public health orders and that needs enforcement action. But I find a lot of this is Edmontonians are typically in their house or in their private gym. And for a lot of people, this will be their first interaction with materially exercising in our river valley. Mm-hmm. And it's huge. Yeah. And people, if they haven't explored, they don't know that all those amenities are there. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, so by Friday morning, if the trend holds, those signage will be up on all the staircases. Let's look for that.
Uh, I won't lament that point any further, but I thought you mentioned this in the pre-show as well. You'll recall back when there was a discussion about raising the minimum wage. There was a group of restaurant owners that had opposed the minimum wage increase because uh, for all many reasons, we can't afford that. Uh, We don't think that all of the servers deserve this high of wage. We want wage flexibility. And now that group of restaurateurs is suggesting they need some help with COVID-19. Yeah, really interesting. So Restaurants Canada is the association. And I mean, we should say right off the top, there's no question that restaurants are really negatively impacted right now. Most of them are closed um, and only doing maybe delivery or curbside if they're able to remain, curbside pickup if they're able to remain open. You know, for restaurants that didn't already have that stuff in place, it's a, a huge amount of work, a huge undertaking to get that all up and running. Um, Restaurants Canada itself states that there's been 95,000 food service jobs lost in just Alberta. Um, so, you know, it's it's bad. Don't don't get me wrong. It's bad. But they're the organization that last February, February 2019, when the NDP was talking about raising the minimum wage again, that they launched this restaurant realities campaign. And it called for a number of things, including a rollback of benefits to workers, a reduction of the minimum wage for youth workers. And of course, they opposed um, the increase to the, the, the minimum wage. And, you know, that got a lot of pushback at the time. There were food operators like Duchess Bake Shop that got in hot water over some of the comments they were made. Uh, Teresa Spinelli from the Italian Center Shop had to walk back some of her comments. Um, It was a pretty negative thing. And then people mostly forgot about it, it seems like. Um, And now... Almost exactly a year later, we've got the same group, Restaurants Canada, talking about how hard um, you know restaurants have been hit, and we've got some of those same people now saying that we should get you know rent, uh, not deferral, but cancellation. We need support. They have a list of demands essentially uh, to try to help uh, restaurants face the decline in in revenue that's coming through COVID nineteen. Um, and there's one that I thought. I really wanted to highlight. And so it's Patrick Sorette of The Mark. He is the past board chair of Restaurants Canada. Um, and in, in 2019, when he was really upset about the minimum wage increases, you know, he said, it feels as if we've had somebody's foot on our throat. He was in charge of this organization that was pushing back against, you know, benefits for workers, essentially. And then this week, he talks to the media and says that he felt he did the right thing in laying people off. And he said, quote, it hurts to lay off family, but it was necessary to do it. And so as a business owner, I get the idea that, you know, it's possibly better to lay people off than keep them on the payroll so they can access all of the benefits that are now coming into place from the the federal and provincial governments. And if you don't have revenue coming in, it's pretty hard to have any money going out. But to talk about them as family, when you actively fought against increasing their minimum, their wages to a minimum in the past, struck me as a little odd, to say the least. It gets even more rich when you consider the idea of a minimum wage. When we're talking about the $15 an hour wage increase that the NDP was talking about at the time, the main justification was this allows a living wage. So if something happens to this worker, they've got a buffer. If their circumstances change, a spouse gets laid off or something, they are able to support their family on their wage because it is enough to survive. So to argue against a wage like that is to argue that these workers don't deserve this buffer and security for when catastrophe happens, they can weather it. And on the other side, catastrophe has happened. And now the restaurants are saying, well, 
we need help to weather this and these benefits should be granted to us while we're laying off these workers. And now I get that this isn't a zero sum game and I get that like wishing for punitive karma to (laughs) hurt these restaurants, not a winning strategy and it's going to end worse for all of us. So yes, I do hope these all of the restaurants that are suffering can get some supports to get through this to uh, eventually rehire the workers so we can still have our thriving local food scene. All of that on the table is something that I want with the asterisk, but this seems like some karmic justice. Yeah, I suppose we should be totally fair and say that not everyone has that position, right? Some of these restaurants um, who are fighting for some of these relief measures now were in support of minimum wage in the past. So, for example, Katie Ingram of, of Cartago, she's kind of the champion of this new independent Edmonton independent hospitality community that's launched this Save Edmonton Hospitality website that is calling for these things. You know, she wasn't trying to uh, argue against minimum wage when that happened. So it's a big organization that represents a lot of restaurants and they don't all agree. So we should put that caveat on the table. But there are a significant number who didn't want to support workers in the past and then are now looking for a handout. We'll move on to the final topic of today. And it's on the same vein of, well, some companies just don't feel like they're getting the support that they need. Um, And in Alberta, I think... One specific industry is getting a lot of support to the tune of $7.5 billion in the past couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. But another key industry that we've talked about a lot, tech, has had some really vocal people speak up this week saying there are some problems and they're getting critical. Right. And the context here, of course, the broader context is that, you know, the knowledge economy, as people call it, and these information-based industries is where the economy is going. And supporting oil and gas, maybe you can make the argument that it helps today, but it's not going to help us down the line. And that's where a lot of the folks in the tech sector feel like, you know, they're putting in the foundations for the future of Alberta's economy and they're getting no support from the provincial government to do it. So a couple of really interesting comments this week um, in, in an article at CBC. So one is from Trent Johnson. He's a Calgary-based uh, tech entrepreneur. He's been in the space for about 30 years, you know, complained that we're betting exclusively on oil and gas. And he had something interesting to say. He said, quote, not only am I actively looking to relocate my family and business, I am also going to publicly work with other technology companies in Alberta to help them move to more technology ecosystem, future friendly cities. So, you know, pretty interesting quote for from him. Not only is he opposed to this and kind of complaining about the lack of support, he's saying that he's going to actively go and do something about it, which is a bit of an extra step that we've not seen currently. He's not the only industry we're seeing this in. Like we've seen as of April 1st with the uh, doctor contract getting ripped up. We've seen rural doctors and doctors speaking up about it's time to move jurisdictions. Alberta is not really supporting us in any material way and other jurisdictions will, which I personally fear we're t- we heard the premier talk on Wednesday about the pretty severe recession that Ed- Edmonton and Alberta will hit once COVID-19 sort of lifts and we get a handle of everything. I'd like our economy to be diverse and thriving. And what I'm seeing is there's a specific through line and Edmonton specifically, we talk about AI and the innovation corridor and 
I've previously boasted about, yeah, we've got a nice tech ecosystem here. We have a lot of innovative companies that have global recognition that started in Edmonton and continue to operate in Edmonton. And I'm really fearful that'll become like the recycling stat where we maybe at one point had 90% diversion from landfill. But if we don't nurture that and maintain that, it might go up in smoke just like our recycling credentials. Yeah, I think there's already evidence that we've dropped in the the global rankings of AI um, research uh, from where we were. So I think that's a very real concern. You're right. Premier Kenny talked about you know unemployment in Alberta reaching at least 25%, at least half a million unemployed people. Um, and the only thing he's really been talking about this week is that he's wanting more money from the feds. And specifically, he's expecting money from the federal government for accelerating oil field reclamation. Like he's still talking about that industry. If we've got that many people unemployed and we're thinking about how do we make sure that our economy is more resilient, that we don't fall victim to a Saudi Russian oil spat, like we need to be able to create jobs in other industries. And tech is where these uh, where these jobs are going to be. And if we're not a player in that economy, then um, we're not positioning ourselves for future growth very well. Um, another one I just wanted to mention quickly, 2S Water. They're a local startup here in Edmonton. They've done some really innovative stuff, won a number of awards and, and a lot of recognition. Um, and even their CEO, Anthea Sargent, is talking about um, potentially having this conversation about moving because she said, quote, we want our business to succeed more than we want to stay in Alberta. So, I mean, if if businesses don't think they're going to be successful here, not only are they not going to come and invest here, like the UCP often talked about spurring investment from outside, but they also won't start here. They'll go somewhere else and start it there. And really, it's all about creating a strong, vibrant community for generations to come. And oh boy, does the ECF do that. The Edmonton Community Foundation acts as a bridge between donors and charities to get precisely that outcome. You can start an endowment fund yourself or with a group. Once it reaches $10,000, it can start distributing funds. And Vital Signs is an annual checkup conducted by the Edmonton Community Foundation in partnership with the Edmonton Social Planning Council to measure how the community is doing. Spoiler alert. Right now, not doing <laughs> phenomenal. This year's focus is on arts, philanthropy, green spaces, and sport and recreation. Uh, you can learn more at ecfoundation.org. And now that I slipped that ad right in under the wire, yeah, I think uh, it's worth talking about COVID-19. Uh, Taproot's still doing uh, some pretty specific coverage about COVID. Yeah, we've launched this microsite, as I've talked about before. We've continued answering questions there from uh, the community who's been sending those in. So thank you for all those great questions. Um, and we've also launched a new feature, which is a timeline. So, you know, we've heard and, and felt this ourselves a number of times that, like, it doesn't seem like that long ago. Like, it was how many episodes ago? And we weren't talking about COVID yet. So a lot has happened in a short period of time. And so what we've done is curated a whole bunch of the milestones and put them on a pretty nice looking, I, th I think, uh, interactive timeline. So you can see from the day that we had the first presumptive case announced in Alberta on March 5th to today, all of the key things that have happened in Edmonton specifically, but in, in Alberta as well. Well, uh, that's it. And we'll keep an eye on this. I don't expect uh, the quarantine to end soon. Um, and I think it's important to be real about that. Um, this is going to be our new normal for uh, a little while now. Uh, so with that in mind, if anyone wants to uh, do a baked goods exchange, just DM me on Twitter. You send anything to my house with a return address, I'll deliver something back. 
guaranteed. Nice. Gotta gotta stay sane somehow. And I can't see these people, but I can communicate with people through the gift of baked goods. As always, check out tapperdedmission.ca for the latest on everything we're up to. And that's all for this week. Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're speaking moistly. Speaking moistly. Two meters apart. Speaking moistly. Speaking moistly.